believers, Christians are weird. Or at least they're supposed to be. From what the Bible tells us, I think Christians are doomed to be oddballs until Jesus comes back. And and it's because hopefully you already understand that our primary mission on earth is to, as children of God, is to grow God's family. And, and people, and that's how Christianity spread across the world from Jerusalem. From Jesus never went 50 miles outside of his, his home. And from there, it spread the world. And it's because people have dedicated their whole lives, their, their fortunes, everything, to spreading the gospel. And that's our mission. And hopefully you understand that. And there's always been rejection. There's always been, you've probably noticed that, that people in our culture, uh, that the rejection of Jesus Christ and his followers is growing and getting stronger and and so we that makes us as believers weird we're countercultural we're we're not supposed to fit with the culture we're supposed to be in the world and not of it and in second peter we're called living stones which is kind of a weird thing to think about we're built on the foundation of Jesus as our cornerstone our foundation stone and and a lot of people get tripped up on the cornerstone of Christ because they refuse to obey him and so they fall over him, and, and so they doom themselves to an eternity without Jesus. But true believers, we're, we're called a royal priesthood. We're, we're, we're royal heirs of Christ. We're, we're, we're priests of Jesus. And, and we're a holy nation, we're called. And a people that belong to Christ. And what makes Christians so different, so special, so holy, so set apart, it's it's not that they go to church. It's not that we do good deeds. It's not that we pray before we eat. It's, it's that we have chosen to do something weird. To obey God. To go against what the entire world tells us and to do something that the Bible tells us. And, and if an unbeliever stumbles on Christ because they refuse to obey Jesus, then a believer is built up on Christ because they decide to follow Him. And when we turn away from our sin and we trust in Jesus, which is how we become a Christian, the grace that He gives, His decision to forgive us out of His riches, to decide I'm just going to let you off the hook and I'm going to treat you as if you are never sinned before. And, and He turns us into something entirely new, something different, something not like the rest of the world, something not like what we used to be, something that the Bible calls totally alien to this world, totally foreign. We're we're the undocumented immigrants of heaven, and and so Peter says in Second Peter, this is two um, eleven through twelve says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul, and maintain good conduct among the non Christians, so that though they may now malign you as wrongdoers. They may see your good deeds and glorify God when He appears. We're actually called to be different, to live good lives, to stand out, regardless of what the world does, regardless of how anybody treats us. We're called to be good and to live good so that even though many in our culture will persecute you for standing for Jesus and will call you names and, and some in some cases do even worse things, in our culture we don't have to worry so much, but there are people who are dying and being tortured and imprisoned for their faith. And when people do that, for standing on Jesus and for obeying Him, they'll still be unable to ignore the lives that those people lived. They'll still be able to, I mean, they'll have to admit that that life was different, that that life was lived for good, regardless of how we treated them. They still lived according to what Jesus 
taught. And as we've been watching these videos, I've been encouraging you to try to think differently as the world tells you to think, to think in a new way. And the culture teaches you to serve yourself, just to worry about your own wants, to take care of number one. And and Jesus gave us an example that was totally different from that. The opposite of that. He he lived self-sacrifice. He taught self-sacrifice. He taught giving kindness in exchange for violence. To give grace where none was deserved. Of, of setting aside worldly gain and focusing instead on eternal treasures in heaven, which we get by simply obeying God, by living for, for the Lord and following Christ's example. And, and all the things that our culture tries to convince us are so important become pretty meaningless when you start to think like Jesus. When you really start to think the way God is trying to lead us into thinking, everything changes. Because we know you can't take money with you, you can't take property with you into heaven. So why commit so much energy to stockpiling it? Why invest our lives in just making money and buying stuff when it's not going to do us any good, when it's all going to wind up as garbage in the long run? Worldly fame and titles might be nice in the world, but they won't do you any good in heaven. So why worry about what anybody else thinks of you except for God? If you live like, a, like an illegal alien in the world, if you live like a foreigner, like a, somebody who's, who's an exile, then you understand that the world's currency will be completely useless in the kingdom of God. And so what kind of currency is good in eternity? What kind of treasure can we store up in heaven for us? Well, number one is a good character. And a, you know, a good character has kind of gotten less and less popular over the years. But we read, uh, we read that in Second Peter. But the, you know, the Bible tells us over and over and over to live good lives. Live your life in such a way so that God is glorified. By everything you say and everything you do, live it to glorify God. Not yourself, not anybody else. You glorify the Lord. And, and what will you have? If you enter eternity and you've spent most of your time and effort on, on making and spending money, Jesus asked, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world but lose your soul in the process? But if your life is committing to serving God and helping others and, and sharing the gospel and you know trying to get other people into heaven, then when you get to heaven, how much more will you have gained? Through all the people that you were able to bring with you, that's one gain, but then also through your faithful obedience, God will then, you know, He taught the parable of talents. He said, you've been faithful a little, now I'm going to put you in charge of, how much more will God entrust you when you get to heaven if you've been faithful on earth? That's gain. That's, I mean, we don't even know how, what it's going to be like. We don't know how good it's going to be. But God says, I'm preparing things for you. I'm preparing something wonderful. How much more profitable would it be to lose everything on earth but gain your soul in the process. I mean, looking from a short-term perspective versus a long-term perspective, that changes everything. I like what they, they quoted the missionary Jim Elliott where he said, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And he, I'm sure some of you know, he and four others were speared to death trying to share the gospel with a remote tribe in Ecuador. And, and they had guns. The Jim Elliott and his friends, they had guns. They could have shot the attackers and defended themselves, but they chose not to because that would be killing somebody and sending them to hell. So they allowed themselves to be killed to, to spread the gospel. They gave their lives literally for Jesus. And because of that, people were saved. In fact, one of their killers gives a testimony about how 
He was transformed because of that sacrifice. And a lot of people were saved because of that sacrifice that was made and, and, and Jim Elliott and his friend's influence. And, and that's eternal treasure that, that Jim Elliott and those missionaries get to enjoy forever. Do you think that any of them regret for a second dying, giving their lives when they stand in the presence of God Himself? Not for a second. And, and, and we have the same choice to make. Do you invest your life in the temporary things of this world or do you invest it in the eternal things of God's kingdom? Ecclesiastes 5, they, they read that with the, some paraphrase. Said, I'll read it 10 through 15. The one who loves money will never be satisfied with money. He who loves wealth will never be satisfied with his income. This also is futile. When someone's prosperity increases, those who consume it also increase. So what does its owner gain except that he gets to see it with his eyes? The sleep of the laborer is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the wealth of the rich will not allow him to sleep. Here is a misfortune on earth that I have seen. Wealth hoarded by its owner to his own misery is wealth hoarded by its owner to his own misery. Then what that wealth was lost through bad luck. Although he fathered a son, he has nothing left to give him. Just as he came forth from the mother's womb, naked will he return as he came, and he will take nothing in his hand that he may carry away from his toil. And that was written by a man, who, a man who had more money than he could ever spend, who was the wisest man in the world, King Solomon. And he wrote, what good is it? It's no good. It's all vanity. That, that most people seem to plan for retirement as if it's the end of life. You know, we've got to save up enough so that we can finish our life well. And, and, you know, your body might slow down a little bit. You might have aches and pains. It might feel a lot harder now to do things that you used to be able to do with ease. But now is not the time to give up and just die now is the time to sprint to the finish at the end of the race everybody is tired you know the marathoners that we see come by here every year everybody gets tired but it's the people who don't give up at the end as they get tired and worn out and drained you know at the end of a marathon your body starts to consume itself because you just don't have enough food to be able to do that so your body starts to eat its own muscle and so you get tired and broken down and, and that's the end of life. Your body starts to break down and get tired and, and consume itself. And, and if you give up, what do you have? And we're called to press forward to the finish, to, to sprint to the end of the race. When, and, and, the, and when we see the finish line of this world as the entrance into heaven, it changes our whole perspective. We, we should be planning for retirement as if it's a new opportunity to serve God in a different way. If you don't have a you know, to clock into a job anymore. Do you think God wants you to squander your final days watching TV or, or playing games or gardening or whatever it is? Of course not. I mean, those, doing those things is fine, but all that extra time could be used to save more lives. Couldn't it? And, and we should be preparing for that. Our whole lives, we should be looking forward to the things that we can do as we reach new stages. And, and when you've got a lifetime of wisdom and experience behind you, you should use it to reach out to the lost. To, you, to have those, those new methods of communication, to start building up treasure in heaven hand over fist because you've got all that extra time to be reaching out to the lost. And what makes it even better, with all that heavenly treasure that you send on ahead, the IRS doesn't get a single bit of it. That's just one thing. <laughs> How many times have you thought, if I just had a little more money, I could... Fill in the blank. I could take a trip. I could fix this broken whatever. I could buy a brand new whatever. I've thought that before, but then I've read countless horror stories 
of billionaires, like they listed some, and, and lottery winners, lottery winner after lottery winner, who wound up with broken marriages and broken families and broken hearts and broken lives. There are so many people who, who, who gained billions and who, who wound up broke or imprisoned or, or, or in an early grave because of their riches. It's weird to think about. I mean, the world says that's not the way it is. We live, you know, even if they hadn't wound up like that, even if there were such a thing as a lifestyle of the rich and famous where it was perfect materialistic bliss, if that could really exist, even then, when, when they stood before God to give an account of, of how they spent their lives and how they spent their resources, I'll bet that every single one of them would say, better to have little with fear of the Lord than to have great treasures. Every single one of them. The, the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are listed in some of the God-given rights that a lot of people gave their lives and gave their fortunes to defend. And how many people since then have traded in those rights, have given up those rights for money, for stuff, for fame, for power, for things that damned their souls to eternal fire? My first time backpacking in the Boy Scouts, um, my mother helped me pack. So, you know, you can imagine I was way overloaded. You're going to need this, and you're going to need this, and you're going to need this. And when I took that first trip, I was broken down in the first, you know, we were supposed to go like seven miles into the mountains, and I was broken down in the first mile. And I had to have other people come and take stuff out of my pack and carry it for me because I couldn't carry it. My next trip, I packed. And I said, I don't need this, and I don't need that, and I never use this, and I don't need that. And I was the first person into the camp. I was helping other people. And it was so much better to, to go in, you know, and, you know, I only need to carry what I need to use at the camp, and then I'm done. Today we have so many things that slow us down in our lives, that drain our energy, that, that take up our freedom, and things that we don't need. How much of your life have you donated to to social media, to watching TV, to complaining about the Cubs. I mean, there, you can think of a myriad of things that we spend our time concentrating on that we don't need to do. And those things might not be evil in and of themselves, but have they built your character? Have they saved souls? Have they stored treasure in heaven for you? When you start thinking from an eternal perspective, everything changes. On Judgment Day, will you be glad that you spent so much time with that stuff? We, we, we have portable time stealers these days. We have tablet computers and video games and smartphones and that kind of stuff. Those kinds of things can be great tools, but, but how often have they instead become distractions from what's really important? Think of this example. Is, is worshiping God more important than turning your electronic devices off? Or is entertaining yourself more important than dedicating an hour to God? Is it more important to keep your phone on so you can hear from other people when they call? Or more important to dedicate this short time to hear from God and obey Him? I'm not saying I have electronic devices. This is my Bible. I have several translations. It's a great tool. But if it takes over my life and uses time and resource, you know, my energy and time to, to play games and entertain myself, instead of reaching out and, sh- and saving lives by sharing the gospel, what, what good is it? It's, it's a piece of garbage that I, that I should just throw away. Uh, there is no good excuse for ignoring God. 
We can come up with all sorts of excuses for doing what we do, for wasting the time that we waste and say, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. You know, sure, I, I spend my time doing this pointless activity, but I need it. We can come up with lots of excuses, but there is no good excuse for not giving our full attention to God and, and looking for how we can do more and give more to save lives by spreading the gospel. And that's Christ's problem with the Laodicean church. When, when, you know, they weren't super bad, and they weren't super good. They were okay. And, and Jesus said, you're lukewarm. And so because you're lukewarm, you're neither hot and cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I'm rich. I have acquired great wealth and need nothing. But you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. And he goes on to tell them, if you want to be rich, if you want to truly be rich, live for God. Live a holy life for God and you'll find true wealth. Have you gotten caught up in the world's propaganda? Have you fallen for the message? Do you, do you, do you want to put an end to your materialism, for, for your slavery to money and things? Maybe it's not a lot, but maybe you've started down that road or maybe you're really caught up. Do you want to change it? Giving is a great way to shift your priorities. And like many things that are good for us, you have to actually commit to it. You have to do it. You, know, you don't learn to ride a bike by reading a book. You get on a bike and you do it. So some things you just got to jump into it. Giving is one of those to step out in faith. I mean, obviously you want to pray about it, but then just step out and do it. The, the, the only reason that a Christian shouldn't give money to the church and to missions and to those causes that, that grow the kingdom is if you don't get any money. If you don't have any money, you know, if you barter with livestock and grain and those kinds of things like they did in Bible days, then you can give a first fruits of those livestock and grain. But if you get money for, you know, if you get paid for a job or retirement or social security or even welfare, whatever your income source is, you ought to be giving out what part of what God has allowed you to use. And, and since everything belongs to Him, technically we owe 100% of everything we have. It's God's. We ought to give it all to Him. But God has entrusted us to manage His property and He allows us to live off His money to live in his homes, to live on his planet, to use his materials. We're all sharecroppers on God's land. You know, a sharecropper doesn't own the land. He works there and he pays a part of his crops for, as rent. God, we're, we're on God's land. He owns the world. He owns the energy. He owns the people. It's all his. In the, in the Old Testament, he gave his people permission to keep 90% of what they made. To keep 90% of their profits and, and spend however they wanted and he required a 10% profit share. And like so many other things that Jesus points out from the Old Testament, he wants giving, just like everything else, based on true faith. I think God purposely left the number blank in the New Testament so that people wouldn't think, well, I've met my quota, now I don't have to give anything else. Or people might say, I've given more, I've given 20%, so now God should be thankful to me for giving so much more. Obviously, what you give is, you know, or not, is up to you. But if you aren't giving, what does that say about your faith? The average American churchgoer only gives 2% of their income to church, to missions. Even during the Great Depression, that was 3%. We're giving less today than people gave in the Great Depression. What does that say about the faith of the average American churchgoer today? What does that what does your giving say about your faith? About 10 to 25% of churchgoers 
of in a typical congregation actually tithe. Not only does that seem to show a huge lack of faith from all the rest, but it shows that American churchgoers have bought into the lie of materialism and greed in a big way. And, and the world has sold that. Culture has sold them on that. How many other booby traps have people fallen into because that selfishness has led them, you know, the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? How many other traps have people walked into because they love their money and their stuff? How, you know, what does that show about our nation? How much has our nation fallen culture-wise, morality-wise, because we've fallen for the materialism that the culture sells? How about in your own life? If God doesn't need cash, why does He call Christians to give? Because God owns everything. He can do whatever He wants. What does He want us to give for? You know, He, he entrusts us. He calls us to... He, he could go save the people by Himself if He wanted, but He said, you go out and preach to the nations. You give what I've given you. If all the Christians in America tithed, if everybody who went to a church actually tithed their money, the church would have $25 billion to end global hunger, starvation, and deaths from, from preventable diseases in five years. We'd solve that. On top of that, we'd have another $12 billion to eliminate illiteracy worldwide in five years. On top of that, we'd have another $15 billion to solve the world's water and sanitation issues, especially in places where people you know, live on a dollar a day. And that's like a billion people. We'd have another one billion to fully fund all the overseas missions. We'd have another a hundred to a hundred and ten billion left over for additional ministry expansion. If all the people in church tithed, we'd have money pouring out. I mean, we wouldn't know what to do with it all. We could solve all the world's problems. But the church doesn't tithe. The church doesn't give. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure? Where is your heart? It doesn't matter how much you have. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Where is your trust? Is it in God, His commands, His commissions, His promises? Or is it in yourself, your money, your power, your ability? Where is your faith? Second Corinthians 8, our, our Scripture for today. Since you excel in so many ways in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, your love from us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. I'm not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of other churches. Paul said, I'm testing with giving. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though He was rich, He had everything, Yet for your sakes He became poor so that by His poverty He could make you rich. And then He calls us to do the same thing. And it repeats for good measure in 2 Corinthians 9 at verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided to give in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He wants you to do it not because you're, you're under the thumb, but because that's how you grow and that's how you gain and that's how you build heavenly treasure. That's how everything that matters is gain. If, if you want, you know, you could use tithing like training wheels. It's one area that God welcomes you to test Him and see if He doesn't bless you for it. I'll read this last Scripture. This is Malachi um, 3, verse 8. He says, Can a person rob God? You indeed are robbing me. But you say, how are we robbing you? In tithes and contributions. You are bound for judgment because you are robbing me. This whole nation is guilty. Bring the entire tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my temple. Test me in this matter, says the Lord who rules over all, to see if I will not 
open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until there is no room for it at all. Then I will stop the plague from ruining your crops and the vine will not lose its fruit before the harvest, says the Lord who rules over all. All nations will call you happy for you indeed will live in a delightful land, says the Lord who rules over all. I truly believe that of all the people who called themselves Christian in this nation actually lived by faith and obeyed God, we wouldn't have the moral decline in our country that we see today. The the church would lead the nation rather than the other way around. It's not the it, you know it's not that we need more money. It, having more money doesn't solve our problems. What we truly need is God's private providence. We need God's providence. We need we need God's blessings because that's what truly matters. It doesn't matter how much money you have. What matters is whether you're on God's side and you're living for the Lord. If you truly trust in God, then giving back some of the money that He's allowed you to use is like breathing in and breathing out. He gives, you breathe in, you breathe out because you trust that you're going to, you don't, you know, nobody worries about breathing. You breathe without thinking, right? Because you know that there's oxygen there. If you're, if you don't actually trust in God, then your, your giving is going to be like breathing underwater. You don't want to breathe out because you know if you do, you're going to die. If you can't let go of what you think you control, you're going to starve yourself spiritually. So we ought to be giving. We ought to be living and trusting that everything we need, God is going to take care of. Because if, it, if there's a worst case scenario and we actually lost it all, if our lives were taken, if we you know, wound up in prison and tortured and beaten and then killed, we have eternal gain. Right? That's how we ought to be living. It doesn't matter what I have. I just do whatever God tells me to do with what I have. Because it's all His anyway. And He's going to, if He wants to give, He'll give, and if he doesn't, he won't, and I'm going to live for him no matter what. Start giving by faith and see how God reveals himself in your life. See how he shares what he has to bless you with. I don't know what it is. It's up to God to decide. But you start living and giving in true faith, and you'll see God come alive in a lot more ways than you have. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you get you've everything we have. You've given us everything we've earned. You made possible everything. There's nothing that we have from the, the the money in our wallets and bank accounts, our homes, our cars, our clothes, the breath in our lungs, the blood in our veins, the muscles that we use to do what we do with. Everything has come from you. Help us, Lord, to to live as if. We know that. To live as if we can trust that everything we're going to get from this point forward still comes from You. So we don't have to be afraid to to give out of faith. We don't have to be afraid to give our money. We don't have to be afraid to give our time. We don't have to be afraid to give our energy to growing the Kingdom of God rather than growing our own personal Kingdom because in the end, it's growing Your Kingdom that will pay off in our benefit. Thank you, Lord. Help us to live for you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.